City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR, 8.55am, and that heinous example of young people's music was Let the Good Times Roll, Part 2 by RJD2. Yeah, about an hour ago or so on the Brecky Show, by the way, they played, probably less than an hour ago, but they, they played Bobby McGee with uh, Janis Joplin, which is which I was enjoying thoroughly at home before I left. Um, I've been threatening to I, bring I, it... I've brought in some old people's music for you as well, Well, Don't I've been worry. threatening to bring it in and, uh, and play it here anyway. I old, love that. The old Bobby McGee. But um, it's a great 3am, out of your mind... 10,000 decibels song, one of the great songs for that sort of thing. But anyway, um, I'm Kevin Healy. She is Corey Green. She's Correct. back after two weeks away. She she was crook last week. She, uh, well, it was radiothonitis, I'm, I'm prepared <laughs> to claim, but it was a great week to be off. And uh, I must admit, though, listening to Corey the day before when she rang to say she couldn't make it, she did sound quite ill. So I was quite yeah, mucusy. Yes, I, yes. Look, I didn't want to spread it during Radiothon. Okay, and you're feeling good today? Uh, I'm feeling great. Oh, great. Wonderful. Look, I'll, I'll pour you a cup of tea. You want a cup of tea? I'll no. pour it right away. No? No, I learned a very, very <laughs> valuable lesson about oh, cups of tea right. and the panel. Yes. And oh, you spilled some. That's right. Yeah, but do you want to... Um, do you, that no, that, 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 that Did you right. know that a radio panel costs $15,000? Uh, <laughs> Radiothon, keep coming. Well, I'm going to pour I myself. I didn't know up. that. I was, I was thinking, how many CSAs am I going to have to make to, to make up for this? Well, I'm going to pour this. Oh, Here we go. There the we horror. Are. Hey, we got I, I the just right couldn't mics. deal with the stress again. We got the mic. People can hear it being poured. There it is. I poured myself one. Yeah. Uh, oh, I just knocked it with the teapot. So let it be. Cost. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, speaking of Radiothon, by the way, Corey, last week we, I don't know, haven't looked at our target this morning, but. We announced a number of them, and there was also one from um, a wonderful donation through the week, subsequent to last Wednesday. But uh, an old an old comrade, Bruce Taylor, um, gave us two hundred and fifty dollars on top of what we got last week, and oh, also thanks, Bruce. Uh, Rick Simpson. He had one which was in memory of Doug Jordan, which was mm. read out on on the pro- following program on Anarchist World this week. Joe pinched our money. Um, <laughs> it was well, he got two. He's one for Joe and one for us. But the, Joe read them both out, and we didn't. But anyway, it's on our program, so I thought Rick wanted me to mention that, and also because he wanted it in memory of Doug Jordan. So, and what did Doug Jordan second? donate? Uh, nothing, because he died about a year ago. So uh, well, seventeen thousand dollars, I thought you said. Oh, that's right, he did actually. Yeah, that's true. He 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 gave. Well, he left a lot. Of, he left that much in his will. And I, I I tried to argue we didn't have to have a radiothon for about ten years on this program, but I, no one had listened to me. Um, but I was wow. treated with absolute repulsion on that one. Money um, grabbing. Yeah, that's right. But Bruce Taylor, he gave two fifty to us and two fifty to um, Chris Gaffney's Friday morning program uh, as a one off. Um, it is also connected to Doug, actually, and I won't go into why. But uh, uh, And, of course, it, it's interesting because Bruce is about 10 years older than me, which makes him really, really old, Corey. Uh, but he uh, he's, he, he got – and thank you, Bruce, if you're listening for, it, um, for that donation. But uh, it's interesting because it goes back a long way. When Chris Gapney and I were actually many years ago when the ALP was worth being in, 
uh, both on the Young Labor State Executive together, and we, we've known Bruce Taylor since that time, going mm. way back, so it's a long-term relationship, yeah. So when was that, the 70s? That was, well, it was late 60s, early 70s, yeah, that period, yeah. My parents were also in the Labor Party, <laughs> um, Boona Branch, and they used to have the meetings at their house because my parents would fix up furniture. So it was the only house in Boona that had enough chairs to sit on for all the members of the Labor Party. Well, there we are. Now I think pretty much any house in Boona would have enough chairs yeah. for all the members of the Labor Party. Right. You better tell when people where Boona is, up there in Queensland somewhere. Well, it's <coughs> out west of Ipswich, which is out west of Brisbane. And Brisbane's oh, the, uh, the, the capital of Queensland in case... Kind of north, you isn't it? <laughs> a little bit north. <laughs> right. Yeah, north of here, that's for sure. Just before you, you did, you had a little straw you wanted to tell. Before you get to it, uh, there was an offer made. Notice in this morning's financial review that Warren Buffett is now investing in Australia, that American, very rich, nasty investor who has no. No guilt at all about investing in junk foods, tobacco and all the usual things. Anything that makes money, he'll invest in regardless. Mm. Anyway, dear old Warren, recently they had, a, had a, an eBay bid uh, to have lunch with him at some restaurant. Um, <laughs> and um, it, got up to, it got up to $3 million, apparently. What? Uh, to dine with the world's third richest man in a hotly contested... It was for a charity, of course. He doesn't need uh, $3 million. And I thought, well, look, if someone said to me... Uh, you can have lunch with Warren Buffett. I'm prepared to pay them not to have lunch with him. Yes, exactly. I'd, I'd certainly pay not to. I certainly wouldn't pay to. Uh, I mean, after hello, what would you wouldn't say, it just you put mean? you off your food? Oh, absolutely. And and you know, after, after hello, Warren. Hello, Kevin. What would you say? <laughs> I blame you, Warren. I blame you. That's what you'd say. Where would the conversation go? <laughs> you'd have to discuss the food at a great rate. Yes. yes. Anyway, you had a story you wanted to tell you, Tom. Oh, oh. we were to tell you, sorry, it's the third Wednesday of the month and it is housing day. And we're going to rave on for about the first half because I've got a lot to talk about as well. But um, in the second half, the, my, people might recall the end of the last housing day, we did talk about uh, how... In terms of the domestic violence debate, a lot of women are left with massive debts, etc. Mm. And we're going to discuss that. It's Jeff Fiedler coming in today, in fact, from the House of the Age Action Group. Um, April's court at court, whatever you had last week, and she's laid up. Uh, and Jeff's coming in, and we've also got, well, you've teed one up. Emma uh, Smallwood from the Victorian Women's Legal Service. Right, and she's going to be on the line as well talking about that issue. So yes, that's so very serious, depressing issue. The second half of the show will be but usual housing. Yep. Definitely needs talking about. Yep. So, related to that, last night I was babysitting, which is why I got in in about one minute to nine, because yeah. I had to babysit up until quarter to eight this morning. I was a hit of me, which says something. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I got in there. I got in there. Amazing. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so you know, I think the thing, one of the things with kids, right, is like you know, they don't know as much as adults, obviously. And when they ask a question, you you really have to say it to them in in plain terms, and you know, probably give a lot of like historical context sort of thing, just so they can sort of get up to speed with what's happening with the world. So. Uh, last night we were brushing our teeth and um, my cousin was playing with all the different perfumes that her mum and dad had and she said, why are there man perfumes and women perfumes? Now, if she had been an adult, I could have said uh, because uh, some men are sexist crybabies, 
But um, mm. she's like eight, and so I don't think that she would really understand the whole sexism thing. So, so then you have to you're in a situation where you have to actually explain things really clearly, and uh, you know, and say something like, um, "Well, some men think that women are so inferior that they would be so insulted if you." compared them to a woman in any way, such as the wearing of perfume, that you have to make a different sort of perfume that just has a different name so that men can still smell nice and not get their feelings hurt. And then, you know, obviously, yeah. And then, you know, she'd be like, well, you know, why does everyone put up with that? And then you'd have to go into, like, the whole history of sexism and, you know, women being men's property and blah, 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 blah. And it just, like, it really struck me how, like, one question can really open up... (laughs) Um, a lot of dialogue but also you know when you say the word sexism you can sort of not think about the fact that it, it means women being you know inferior to men in a lot of people's minds but but when you have to explain it you really you know you really have to look at it and it sort of like hurt my soul to think about it that way and so yeah I um I just told her I didn't know because I didn't want to hurt her soul either but <laughs> it was such a weird like just having to look in the face of of this phenomenon, I guess. And we're going to be talking about it later on in the so show. So was the choice of all that or being regarded as an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> so I went you with... Did, didn't know the answer. You went with the idiot bit. I went with the idiot bit. I usually, <laughs> I usually answer her questions honestly, but I was just like, no, nah, not, not before bedtime. You'll have nightmares. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does raise some interesting... Well, great. Indeed, as you say, it does raise some interesting questions there, doesn't it, the whole thing? And of course, that's... Well, that's the very basis of what we'll be talking about in the second half of the show. Mm. In fact, there was a Emma Smallwood, we got her name because people might have heard it. She was actually on the law report on Radio National three or four weeks ago on this issue as well. They were looking at it as a legal issue. Um, and uh, one woman had a massive debt. I might, I'll talk to her about it when we get there, but um, I think 80,000 comes to mind. Whether that's correct, I'm not sure. We'll check that out. But the debt was built up through the usual way the husband did it. He had her, used her credit card. He drove her car and massive fines. And there were all sorts of other things that she inherited from a split relationship. But things like just him using her car and not paying for anything and using her credit card, all that sort of stuff, just quite extraordinary. And she, But she, she said she, she's made an arrangement with the bank and she's happy to pay the lot back in that she's out of the relationship. But I thought it's a pretty poor plus in mm. terms of having eight, you know, an 80,000 debt or something over your head. We'll get to that later, but, yeah, it's a pretty awful situation. Yeah, well, the whole thing is about control. If she's mm. in debt, she can't, you know, get a new lease or anything like that. No, all those things, yeah, that's right. She's, And, of course, that comes down, that's where Jeff comes in, the whole housing thing. And April said last month they have a lot of people, I was talking to Jeff about it yesterday, a lot of people who come into their office who face this very problem. And, of course, it, you know, it, it just exacerbates your problem of homelessness or trying to get a roof over your head mm. when you've got that sort of debt over and above. Uh, one thing I found interesting, I, and this is a sheer fluke, a, a neighbour of mine who's obviously a Catholic gets this Catholic magazine and there was a story about Shane Healy leaving 3AW and going apparently to become the spin doctor, they call him communications officer. But uh, Is he a relation of yours? He is actually, yeah. Spin doctor, he's a, well, he's a second cousin. He's a second cousin in the same vein as the ex-footballer who won the Brownlow medal. But both of them, I want to qualify, I've never met either of them. <laughs> <laughs> we all have black sheep in our family. And I always claim that my, I always claim that, uh, my contribution to the Brownlow medal was never meeting the boy. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, the better side, I really can't take a lot of claim for them, but... Um, 
this bloke, because he, he, he sort of mentioned this in relationship, etc., he, he left this magazine which has a story about him. He's gone off to become media officer for the Catholic Archdiocese of Melbourne, for God's sake, leaving 3AW. But And the whole thing's the most awful articles. I mean, it's terrible. Doesn't that tell you about 3AW as well? Yeah, well, that's right. But anyway, the whole thing. But except there's one article in the whole magazine that really is very good. And I How thought did I, you read the whole magazine? Well, you I, must I, have a strong no, stomach. No, I, I perused through it. I saw this headline and I decided to read it. The rest is just all crap. But... Um, there's a uh, um, Bishop Christopher Saunders of Broome has posed the question, what choice to Prime Minister Abbott after his comment that Aboriginal peoples are trying to remote in remote communities are living as a lifestyle choice and remote things. And, uh, you know, they quote what Abbott said. And um, this bishop bloke says, where is the lifestyle choice? He's chairman of the Bishop's Commission for Relations with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Communities are underserviced and patently there is insufficient listening to the voices of people in Aboriginal communities. We are forcing Aboriginal people out of their ancestral lands to live in regional towns. The reality is that when a community is closed down, people and their families have nowhere to go. They end up on the streets, separated from their land, heritage, family, culture and spirituality. It is a basic human right to choose where you live, but it seems that our government is giving people in Aboriginal communities the choice to live in a community with only limited resources and services and choices in parentheses. After 200 years of colonisation and dispossession, surely, out of fairness, we owe something to Australia's First Nations in the way of respect and recompense. Recent research has found that where Aboriginal communities are supported to serve as models of landscape management or as the source of new community initiatives, they have far better outcomes in health and education. Like other Australians, they have the right to access basic municipal services. In the Prime Minister's use of the term lifestyle choices is an insult to Aboriginal people. To dispossess another generation of our people will deal a further... I'm sorry, this is the, the Catholic Council actually said this, will deal a further blow to health, education and living standard disparities between Indigenous, etc. So I think it's quite a bloody good statement, particularly where it came from. I am thinking that if the Catholic Church is, you know, rinky-dink about making things up to Aboriginal people, maybe they could... Um, pay all those Aboriginal people they had working for them under slave conditions. They could well. Yeah, or pay their ancestors, you know, intergenerational wealth, which, I don't know, I just thought that's one thing. Or they could make reparations for all the abuse on the missions. The missions, yes. I mean, it's not like the Catholic Church is short of money, and it's not short of land either. I mean, it's got heaps of land. It could give... The stolen generation, many of whom were taken by Catholic missions and put in Catholic homes to... To wait on the uh, families, etc. Yeah, or to wash laundry for the nuns mm. or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's actually a lot that they could do. I mean, you know, it sounds nice, but there's, you know, they're actually in many ways, like, you know, directly responsible. They directly benefited from this system and they have the means to directly, at least, pay these people back. Yep, absolutely. You could write to this magazine and... Put, you know, <laughs> See if you get a letter. See if you get a letter. In. I'll give you the give you a little lady. You could get the address, but that's true. I mean, that's. I mean, the statement's excellent. But I mean, they have they have played such a key role in the original dispossession they talk about. Hmm. Exactly. Another one that um, going back to that question of your story and the the later um, part of the show we're going to talk about. Interesting letter in, I think it was yesterday's paper, uh, Monday's paper, in fact, as he looks at the top of the page. Um, Megan Jones of Port Melbourne wrote, um, because you might have noticed that in the, in the Royal Con Mission, um, there's been this stuff about sea bus 
and information being leaked to the dreadful union about members in a, in a Cuban company so they could, one, get the membership in and... and, and, and from the, this is from, from CBUS and superannuation details so that the union could actually recruit members. I mean, it's... The crime seems to be unions having members. That seems to be the major crime. But um, this person makes the point because two people have been sacked now um, out of the whole staff of whatever it would be, hundreds or whatever, at uh, CBUS. And the two people who have been sacked have both been, wait for it, women. Mm-hmm. Women. And this point, this reader points that the Megan Jones says, is, you know, it's bizarre that two young women have been sacked uh, the CFMU membership is about 95% male. The staff at CBUS are at least 80% male, including the CEO and the entire board. The construction industry is mostly male. So how come two women, Maria Butera and Lisa Zanetta, are taking the heat for the crimes and misdemeanours of this union industry super fund? I can only imagine the hurdles these women have had to go through to survive in that industry, only to find themselves the scapegoats for a bunch of faceless men who let them. Why is the Royal Commission not asking the obvious question? Why is the relic of the 60s, the Master Builders Association, the major employer on the board of CBUS. I'm not sure what the last point has to do with it, but um, it is interesting, isn't it, that two women have borne the brunt of the uh, so-called crime. Mm, that is interesting. Yes. Yes, it is. So that's, uh, that's that one. That's that one. Um, and on that, I think it's, it's what, I, what really is, annoys me is that both the well, the CBUS one I think is a question of you know union membership etc. I'm not sure there is a major crime involved in that really, um, but the latest AWU thing, for instance, if there's truth in it, and it seems there probably is, uh, that they did deals where workers were worse off. I mean, gives ammunition to the Royal Commission because all the other stuff's a beat up. It's about workers, you know, unions acting on safety etc., which apparently is a crime. Mm. Unions abusing bosses or abusing bosses' representatives. I see if you know how awful that a, that a, a union representative or a worker would abuse a boss. I mean, that's a, that's one of the most heinous crimes of all. <laughs> But it gives them ammunition. So you actually had a situation where the 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 regular Herald Sun dreadful dreadful columnist two days ago came out exactly defending workers all of a sudden because they're being treated so dreadfully. And uh, Bill Shorten is to blame. And because the cleaners on Monday, are you sure it's not a typo? No, because the cleaners had had a justice for cleaners day on Monday, which the Herald Sun on the. I did not mention other than this particular thing in the column, whereas The Age had it front page, by the way, but that's interesting, I thought. Um, but um, And that's another but, industry that's um, dominated by women and totally underpaid due to the fact that it's seen as women's work. Exactly. When, so, in fact, it's probably yeah. some of the most valuable work you know you can do. I mean, think about, like, at a hospital, what job do the cleaners do? They make it so that the hospital can function. If there's no cleaners, everyone dies. Yeah, well, both. But people just see it as... Yep. As nothing work. And Bolton Co. can now use it as ammunition. They've used it against Shorten. You've got the government coming out and saying, isn't it terrible? Workers are getting a bad deal. Like, this is the government that uh, screams if workers get a rise, and now they're screaming they're not getting a rise. This is bloody ridiculous. And um, Labor reckons they're on yeah, their side when they backed fair work. That's wrong. Well, of course they didn't. Labor doing these bloody, <laughs> the, you know, photo opportunities with the striking workers. The other one that's... Such um, hypocrites. The other one, the, the case that might have some 
you know, bearing some truth to it, uh, yet to be proven, of course. But Kathy Jackson and the so-called ripping off of the health union, uh, who's been charged with knocking off money. What's the uh, health union? Sorry. The, well, the, the health services union. And Kathy Jackson, she's facing allegations of tra- of, of um, taking or think. Wait, so, sorry, I just need to clarify. It's, so it's not the AMA and it's not the nurses union. No, it's so the health, health services is it? union. Like, uh, who does it represent? Well, it represents um, mainly the people we're just talking about, cleaners and others in the, well, not sure the cleaners are, but people who work in the industry who aren't non-doctors. Okay. The nurses represent nurses, so it's the rest of what the What about staff. administrators? Um, or do they have their possibly, own union? They, there are several sections of the hospital of the health services union, so I'm not sure which one they'd be in. Okay. But the one she was in, I mean, she's been charged with knocking off, well, with misdirecting money or something. The case is about to hit court, but they've dragged it before a court because they discovered that last year the case was transferred because she was too ill, mentally ill, to face it, apparently, psychiatrically ill. Hmm. But now um, they've, they've, they're trying to get, it, get her stopped from transferring her assets to her partner, um, which hmm. is all very interesting. And her partner just happens to be a commissioner on the Fair Work, speaking of Fair Work, on the Fair Work Commission. Um, and he's uh, he's a Fair Work Commission vice president, in fact. But it's just interesting. And that they, again, those sort of people, unfortunately, give some credence to what the thing's all about when we know it's just a bloody witch hunt anyway, mm. primarily to get the uh, the um, the building construction union. The the other one industry that's interesting at the moment, and it's a bit of a sleeper because I think it's going to really hit the fan, so to speak, shortly. The insurance industry put a submission to government that that workers comp uh, insurance, which is state-run, be opened up to competition, as they call it. Uh, and that competition... Uh, privatising yeah. things has worked out so well oh, in the past. More efficient, more efficient. Uh, and they're offering... And at one stage, they talk about uh, this would be financial benefits to the insurance industry, to government, to something else. The only thing they leave out in the financial benefit was the actual workers injured or the families of dead workers. They just forgot to mention them. Mm. Uh, and um, they talk about how it would be cheaper for the uh, for companies to have workers' comp, etc. But then they throw a clause in that's really interesting. They then say that long-term injuries uh, should go off workers' compensation and on to their own superannuation. So they actually want workers then <laughs> to start paying for their injury through their own superannuation. So uh, then all that insurance money... They're just going to keep it, basically. Well, one assumes that. Uh, if you're not uh, using the insurance money yeah, for what it's meant yeah. for. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's got to go somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, and of course, we know anyway that in, in, in the last 10 or 15, 20 years or more, uh, they regularly keep reducing what workers are entitled to anyway. Whereas, you know, we would argue that if a person worker's injured at work, they should get their full pay for as long as they can't go to work. If mm. that's forever. And their doctor's bills. Yeah. and Well, oh, yes. And if that's forever... And there are, I mean, we're not going to go into it now, but there are other sides of the whole industry where where doctors who are working for insurance companies or for government, um, mm. you know, go out of their way to prove the worker isn't ill or injured and uh, and sometimes do the most awful damage to people. So it's a pretty awful industry in many ways. Mm. Mm. But that's just one that might blow up, I think. Do you want to go to a track? Yeah, just before, one more before we go All to right. a track, then we'll go to our, our interview, in fact. But this is a football story. You'll be pleased to know. Oh, yep. great. Yep. Great. Yeah, Geelong had some... Man a, runs around with a ball, yep, sometimes little, kicks it. Four little paragraphs tucked away in a column in the Herald Sun on Monday, I think it was, or yesterday. Yesterday, I looked at the top again, Tuesday. 
Geelong had some unexpected support in the stands at Adelaide Oval on Friday night. Brownlow medalist Jimmy Bartell had planned to watch his teammates from his couch at home, given he had a train, etc. But a call from the club changed all that, and he soon found himself on a private jet heading to the City of Churches. One of the club's major sponsors, Cotton On, had a crew going over, so Bartell tagged along and enjoyed the VIP treatment. Now... I raise that because Cotton On with its private jet VIP treatment. I wonder wonder if they've yet compensated. Apparently not, because they're still waiting for compensation. The families and the people injured in the um, in the Rana Plaza uh, collapse in Bangladesh, which was making Cotton On clothes, and they get their clothes come from Bangladesh. But uh, the company that has a private jet and all that and all the stores around Australia. Uh, is probably one of the ones um, who employed workers who were still waiting for compensation some years later. Just thought I'd mention that. Throw well, it in. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, but I, I think you're underestimating the importance of the man who runs around with the ball. I mean, of course he deserves a private jet and a party. I mean, look at everything that he's contributed to society, you know, as compared to people who make clothes. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not knocking the guy. Like, like if would, he doesn't pick I, up the ball and move yeah. it from one part of the field to the other, how's it going to get there? Are they going to have yeah. to automate that? Yeah, he's a bloody good footballer. Yeah. Yeah, he's injured all this year, but yeah. But uh, I'm not going to knock football. Never will I knock football. Don't worry about that. <laughs> we got to go. All right, we're going to go to a track now. Um, this is a new one, newish one, from uh, Murray musician Thelma Plum. This is called How Much Does Your Love Cost? And that was Thelma Plum with How Much Does Your Love Cost? And you're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, or maybe streaming through 3cr.org.au. The time is 9.34. Yep, and we've got on the line Emma Smallwood from the Victorian Women's Legal Centre. Are you there, Emma? Yes, hi. Yep. As we said earlier, Emma, Emma's going to talk about it. And Jeff Fiedler's in the studio, by the way, as well. Who Jeff's from the Housing for the Aged Action Group. Uh, and at the end of our conversation with um, his cohort, um, uh, April Bragg, who's away crook today, but April uh, last time, we mentioned we discussed this subject because it's such a serious one with domestic violence in the news. But one aspect of it, of course, is women caught up with amazing debts, etc., thanks to relationships. And Emma, it's something I know you've looked at pretty closely, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So we've started a new pilot project at Women's Legal Service, the Stepping Stones Project, and the aim of that project is to really look at the financial impacts of family violence on women. Um, So in particular debt, we've got a financial counsellor who's helping our clients with debt and also the legal aspects as well. Um, In domestic, just to like go back a bit, what do you think um, motivates somebody to, to be a domestic violence perpetrator? Oh, wow, Corey, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, look, one thing we do know is that society has more rigid gender roles um, um, and there's gender inequity, then there's often also violence against women. And so we look at violence against women within the structural constraints in terms of um, gender inequity within society and try um, and address it on those structural levels. And would you also Um, say that it's an issue of control? um, Well, look, certainly violence is a choice um, and perpetrators who choose to use um, violence, um, yeah, are absolutely making a choice to control and abuse a victim of violence. 
Um, and so that's something now, as you said, um, it's getting a bit more media and attention in the community, which is really a good thing. I think because of the efforts of Rosie Batty, it's, um, it's becoming a topic that people are talking about and, and they're really concerned to address now. Um, Emma, it's, uh, it's Jeff Fleetman here from the Housing for the Aged Action Group. Um, from the perspective of our service, working with older people, older women on low incomes, one thing that, well, probably a trend that we come across more than anything is women who are trapped because they don't have any funds at all and so that they can be mm -hmm. trapped in relationships they can't, they don't feel like they can economically get out of. Um, so, for example, someone who you know needs to escape, but then they need to be able to um, money to get another place somewhere else. They need to move. All those sorts of things can be a barrier in themselves and often um, trapped. Sorry to interrupt, but your mic is malfunctioning. I'm going to swap you over. Do you want to put that one in your mouth? Is that one going? Yeah. Is that, that yeah, better? Jeff. Look, I think that's yeah. absolutely right. Um, and uh, like I, I think that that's one of the big issues, and that's certainly something that comes through when we speak to women. Um, lots of the women in our Stepping Stones research, um, we've got a report coming out in September which really talks about those systemic problems, and lots of the women say that that was a huge factor um, in them not being able to leave, is really they're being faced with the choice of homelessness or a violent relationship, which neither of those choices are, are acceptable, and that's sort of what we're looking to reduce. So um, it's about making sure that there is long-term affordable housing strategies for women. Um, it's about making sure um, that women have access to lawyers um, in relation to tenancy issues, in relation to accessing property settlements, in relation to accessing funds as a result of relationships, in relation to intervention orders and making sure they can stay in the home when that's possible. Yeah. So there's a whole range of legal and financial um, options which at the moment women just aren't getting access to. Yeah. One other factor that we've been looking at recently is, um, I'm not sure if you've come across this issue, where, um, for example, we had a client who let, had to leave a violent relationship um, she jointly owned a home, but she fears doing anything more in terms of um, resolving the, you know, organising the sale of the home, or whatever, because she of the fear of violence. So now she's living in private rental accommodation, paying probably seventy percent of her income in rent. Really struggling in that situation, but we're looking at ways of um, seeing if the Office of Housing will consider early entry for her into public housing whilst acknowledging that she has some interest in an asset but she can nev never realise because of the fear, because of the danger of taking action um, to, to resolve the property settlement. Is that, have yep. you heard of that Absolutely. situation at all? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's something that's common um, with our clients and that's where our service can be really useful in helping um, women uh, get their name off that title or access um, whatever portion of the property that they might be entitled to um, whilst insulating them from the violence that they've been experiencing. Um, that, that's a really common scenario, unfortunately. And what the research tells us is that women often don't pursue their property entitlements because of fear of violence. Um, and so it's something we're really concerned about. And so we help, we're helping women through the Stepping Stones project in resolving those issues and hopefully putting them back on a path to economic mm. wellbeing. But there are those sort of structural barriers for women 
And unfortunately, Women's Legal Service can't help all the women who are in that situation. And because it is a common one, um, we're really interested in looking at what needs to change so that women aren't stuck in that really precarious situation. Mm. We might have to contact you in regards to some of those cases. So it would be great to work with your project. And a lot of women, of course, Emma, um, a lot of women end up going guarantor, thinking all safe, etc., and end up with massive debts. I mean, that's another major way people get into this sort of debt, isn't it? Going. Yeah, so economic abuse is a really particular type of um, family violence. So, um, And that's another part um, of the whole picture that we're looking at with Stepping Stones is when women are coerced into um, racking up debt in their name because of an, the conduct of an abusive partner, um, sometimes there's fraud at play, sometimes um, it's just an abusive partner stealing from them. Um, in other circumstances, they're coerced into taking out loans in their name. We've had clients who don't speak English who've been coerced into signing loans for, um, for example, for cars that they derive no benefit from so that it's solely in the perpetrator's names, but all the debts in their names. So that's um, a really big part of this picture is, um, you know, is that debt that's racked up as a result of economic abuse. Um, and we're looking at the different ways that banks might need to change their policies in terms of screening for family violence, dealing with economic abuse, um, factoring it into their policies and their procedures, because at the moment it's just really not there and the credit providers are sort of turning a blind eye to what's going on for women in that situation. And where do um, children come into this? Um, so certainly children are a big part of the picture and when it comes to domestic violence and homelessness, um, we're really keen to see the police take a more proactive role in allowing women and particularly their children remaining in the home um, where there's been a violent incident rather than um, women having to leave with children um, and the homelessness affecting the children. And, you know, um, children are expensive little buggers too. <laughs> Yeah, look, certainly that's, you know, the um, the risk of poverty for women in general in Australia is higher. Um, the risk for single parents, the majority of which are women, is higher again. So there's sort of all these compounding factors that put women at risk of financial hardship. Um, so it's just sort of um, part of that bigger picture. I was reading about in, um, in some uh, domestic violence situations, um, men compromise the contraceptive and and get their wives pregnant as a way to make them more uh, linked to them. And, yeah, it seemed to me that that's, you know, as well as an emotional thing, it's also an an economic thing. Right, that's not something that I've come across, but certainly I can say that the tactics um, of family violence perpetrators um, vary, but there is that sort of commonality of that control um, that, that's always there. So that's in relation to that emotional abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse or economic abuse. And it's just, it's um, whichever tactics they choose to use, it's that commonality of control that's there. And that's the behaviour that we're really, um, you know, looking to address through our project, but also through law reform as well. I mentioned earlier, Emma, the, the law report about three or four weeks ago, in which you were interviewed as well, um, looking at this issue, there was a woman there who ended up with, I think it was 80000 but I'll stand corrected on that, but some massive debt, and it emanated from all sorts of reasons, including car being in her name and the husband running up all sorts of debts through the car, fines, etc., plus using her credit card. And she was so relieved to be out of the relationship, she was prepared to pay the money back, but it just seemed to me to be so unjust that she was stuck with all that money. 
yeah, that's look, that's absolutely right. And that's something that we see all too often um, is that women are choosing safety and safety of their children um, over in pursuing their entitlements um, or being free from that debt. And so certainly we see those perpetrators as they racking, racking up that debt as a way of further abusing and controlling women. Um, and then unfortunately, women just being, being lumped with, with having to pay for it. And unfortunately, many of our clients will choose just paying off a massive debt um, and assuming sole responsibility for it um, rather than going down the legal path of, of trying to... Well, there, there are limited legal remedies for them at the moment anyway to try and free themselves from joint debts particularly. Um, but, yeah, certainly if they feel that they're going to be putting their safety at further risk, um, often they will just be left paying it, which is, you know, is, is extremely unfair. And it, and it does just put women in that cycle of entrenched poverty, which we're really, um, we're really trying to look at exposing those long-term impacts not like once you've left the violent relationship, then um, you know, then you can go on and rebuild if you're left with this huge debt of the perpetrator. Just to follow that up, we clearly need major changes to the law in this area, don't we? Yeah. Look, I think it's a range of things. So it's a, it's a changes changes to law. Um, it's changes to the way that credit providers and banks operate. Um, it's, like I said, it might be police taking more proactive role in ensuring women and children can remain in the home. It's also access to services, um, particularly in relation to homelessness for women. So there's probably quite a few things at a legal and a policy level that need to change in order to um, to address this issue because it's, it's really complex and multi-layered and there's, um, women aren't just facing one legal or financial issue, they're facing multiple interlinked ones that need kind of a systemic um, focus to really address what's going on. Emma, is, um, is the project focusing on abuse in terms of a primary relationship, in terms of a spouse, or is it looking more broadly at um, things around areas of like family abuse? Um, because an issue we come across a lot, obviously, is elder abuse um, caused by the children of women and, and men to a smaller extent. Um, in similar in a similar way sometimes with violence um in other times um families get elderly people to their elderly parent to move in with them they then can uh, capture their bank accounts and then look to evict the parent from the home um these are scenarios we've come across quite a lot is that within the terms of reference of what the work you're doing it's not within the terms of reference of, of this Stepping Stones project, but it is something that Women's Legal Services is, is interested in um, more broadly um, and certainly something that, that does come up in the literature around economic abuse. And I think there are probably lessons to be learned from the gains that have been made um, in terms of banking policies, um, utility provider policies in relation to elder abuse. It's something that now that's recognised in a lot of hardship policies, um, whereas family violence intimate partner family violence isn't specifically um recognized so i think elder abuse is um yeah it is absolutely um a big issue and there has been some sort of small gains recently in relation to it that i think we can sort of learn from in relation to the intimate partner side of things as well yeah i should also quickly mention that seniors rights victoria is doing a lot of work in that space and they also have legal um advocates that can assist people in that type of situation. So I guess it is being dealt with at, at, at that level. Absolutely. 
So <clears throat> one of the, um, I guess, signs um, that you might be entering an abusive relationship is somebody who wants you to commit very quickly. They want you to, you know, move in with them or get married or, you know, so on and so forth. Now, I think one of the interesting things about Jeff when you're working with older women is that in a way back when they were young the whole of society was set up so that you know that you would become economically dependent on your husband very quickly how has that played out well um it one of the most distressing things that we come across is women in relationships where they decide to leave their partner after 50 years for example so as you say there's been a lifetime of abuse in that situation and and often it can end up being the catalyst of, of some sort of viable exit point that eventually has arisen, such as the opportunity to move into affordable housing from, from our perspective and the encouragement of, of women to take action at that point. But it, but it is an absolute tragedy when you realise there's been a, a whole lifetime of abuse there and that people take action when they're 70, perhaps even 80 in their 80s. Before, you know, after such a long period of time, but they finally do um, get some liberation at, at um, you know, at some point in their life at last. I like that they mm. don't give up hope. Yeah, that, uh, you imagine the strength to have put up with that situation for so long. Mm. And then we do see remarkably the, the, the blossoming of people even after that that point. I mean, sometimes that even happens when a spouse passes away, of course, mm. that, that women can become really liberated all of a sudden, and that, that can even be where there's lower levels of abuse in relationships as well. We see a lot of women who really their lives change dramatically and um, and blossom once um, partners die in some some cases. Mm. Apparently, uh, women who are married on average live a shorter life than women who are not married, and men who are married on average live a longer life than men who are not married. So there you go. It's sort of like menace, sucking your years out of you. <laughs> not sure what that says for everyone in the studio or even Emma. I'm not sure what Emma's situation is, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're all hoping. <laughs> Emma, in terms of the banks and, um, and I say, the legal situation, etc., are, are you getting any improvement in all that? Or the, I know on that, on that um, show on Radio National, there was some suggestion the banks are being a bit more flexible these days. Um, look, certainly through our project, we've had some really great results by having conversations with banks. Um, but what we'd like to see is a more systematic approach to these issues by banks. So getting those policies in place so women can access, um, they can call a bank and talk about their family violence experience and expect a really empathetic response from a bank um, and a practical solution that doesn't force them to deal with their perpetrator. Um so we don't want the Stepping Stones project to have to continue forever. Um, we want to hopefully make sure that the banks can put in place processes so women can access that kind of response on their own because at the moment um, it sort of requires us to really have um, a serious conversation with the bank to get a good result for a woman. And I assume for many of these loans, particularly ones where women sign up and guarantor, etc., that that. You could almost you could argue that the, the the loan the loan should not have been made in the first place. That it was quite irresponsible to give it, and really the blame should go back to whoever loaned the money in the first place. Yeah, look, certainly that that is a proportion of the cases. Um, it's not all of them. Uh, the case I mentioned earlier, where the client didn't speak any English and was signed up to a loan agreement she didn't agree and she derived no benefit from, was clearly a case um, where the lender was you know at fault. Um, and so there are 
certainly um, a percentage of those cases that will always probably require some advocacy um, by a lawyer or a financial counsellor from our office. But um, there, yeah, there are also cases that are a little bit more grey and a little bit more complicated and require a bit more of a sort of empathetic, nuanced response from the bank. Mm. The thing, the thing about banks is, you know, they. They're not really known for their compassion and they are known for their overwhelming desire to make profit. And, you know, on on the, um, on the end of the person who unethically signed that person up for a loan, you know, they probably had a quota of how many loans they had to sign people up for if they're going to keep their job and, you know, blah, blah. Like, I, I would say that there's there's more to it than that. There's probably... Uh, yeah. yeah, look, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of commercial... Banks have obligations to their stakeholders, and we absolutely um, acknowledge that. But there's also an element of social um, corporate responsibility, um, and we're really, you know, we're keen to see um, the banks and providers and utility companies in particular um, ensuring that 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 sort of their hardship provisions extend to family violence victims specifically, um, and really that they're not um, helping perpetrators to further perpetrate economic abuse. Mm. When you think any lender or bank wants to do that, <laughs> when you think bank, the word altruism doesn't automatically spring to mind, does it? Um, Emma, look, thanks for your time today. But um, just if people want to contact your office and get more information or need help, um, information contact. Uh, well, so well, contact for your office, contact. yeah, yeah, and for yeah, your program, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. So women can contact our office. Um, they can call our phone line. Uh, Sorry, you just cut out then. Sorry, what was your phone number? Oh, oh we've lost her. Okay. Oh, dash. Um, did, we, did we know the number? We, we did. We rang it yesterday. You happen rang it yesterday. to not know the number off the top of my head. Uh, dash. Anyway, it's, it's Victorian Women's Legal Centre. Service. Service. Anyway, there you are. Oh, that's bad. Like we lost yeah. at the very moment she was going to give us details. But Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, just in the time we've got left, um, did you have anything you wanted to say specifically today about housing that you were? Oh, you've probably been covering this a fair bit, but just the the lunatic fringe amongst all the politicians with the terrible um, housing um, noise in the media of late. You know, with with um, Abbott and um, well, I was thinking when you said you know, someone leaves a relationship after fifty years and looking for housing, <laughs> all she's got to do is get a decently paid job and she can afford a house. <laughs> yeah, exactly with right. No experience, no yeah, references, just, and if she does get a job, she's only going to be paid. You know, what is it? It was particularly poignant for people on age pensions, wasn't it? <laughs> but as I keep saying, that uh, in, if, if treasurer, if being treasurer is a well-paid job, then and, and if if Joe Hockey can be treasurer, anyone can. So yeah. that's a good start. She can become treasurer. Yeah. It, it, it's just very depressing. We can't have an adult debate about housing issues and developing housing policies in this country. The, mm. We've got a federal government with no housing policy whatsoever, except, yeah, well, as you say, what is it? We want to drive prices up in the in the in the housing market. That's about the extent of their policies. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, the Greens, you know, came forward proposing that again to that we should uh, do something about negative gearing. And, of course, you know, that would um, create about $5 billion immediately if they did that. Wow. Um, if the government did that, that could be poured into affordable housing. But there's no funding for affordable housing. There isn't any policy at the Commonwealth level for creating new affordable housing. No, the whole debate never goes to the thought of actually building housing 
a public and housing for people. That, that seems all, to get ignored in the debate. It's all totally. about inflating prices for investors. So another one, like, what, another one we've going? talked about regularly, Jeff, um, is about public property becoming uh, handing over to developers. And in my local rag um, in the last couple of days, you might remember we went on, in fact, I went there myself, to a picket line at... Um, at the um, Ballot Baroop um, school in Glenroy, the Indigenous school that was closed down, and we tried to save it about three or four years ago now, I think it was. But that's now on the market, and um, the Aboriginal community is saying, well, it should be kept because there's all sorts of sacred things there, etc., for them. But the government's selling it to developers, and the local council's saying, well, we'd buy it and keep it for that purpose, but they can't afford it because the government wants more money than the council thinks that you know they want it, they're prepared to pay. And so you've got this whole school site closed down, which were closed down and, and served the Aboriginal community anyway, which in mm. itself was a crime in my opinion, mm. just d- closing it down. Mm. But now they're selling that to private developers. Um, yeah. Here's public land. Yeah. Well, as you say, that's been the trend over the last uh, 20 to 30 years. Yeah. I think... Um, Tim Pallas came out recently saying that the Commonwealth Government should be looking at the defence land. Apparently heaps of defence land still out there, yes. just sitting there idle. And that could also be converted into affordable housing. But we know already that any debate around that is about how you sell that sell that off to developers. You'd wonder if there'd be like chemical contaminants and things on defence land. Well, probably, there probably is, so they would have to, you know, look at that sort of clean-up. But, um, and contaminated human beings used to be on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know that with affordable housing, one of the, the big barriers to the cost of it all is the land. That's the big expense. Mm. So if you actually own the land, you've got this huge starting point. Mm. Um, and so your billions of dollars go so much further if you actually own the land to begin with. Um, and there's, you know, so many developments. We lost all the public housing land in Carlton was one that I've yeah. always been really concerned about. There's all these new private apartments on that site there that is in such a brilliant position that could have been, you know, more public housing built on that site. That's just a yeah. recent example. And as they used to, I mean, they could have their own construction authority, which saves a lot of money in construction, train workers, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. There's Creates so many jobs. possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Builds houses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does all of that and more and, and brings down the, the cost in the private market as well if you create mm. that supply. Mm. I mean, yeah, this is the sort of economic um, housing debate we need to have, but it's just mm. not existing at all. And it's very, very disappointing. And you know, Labor's just as bad. They don't, um, they don't have any any policy right. framework either. Well, their difference on negative gearing is Liberals say we will not remove negative gearing. Labor says we'll look at it. Yeah, but not, retro- <laughs> not, not retrospective either. That's right. No, no, maybe no. if, you, if, you, if you've That's got right. your finger in the pie now, we, right. won't, we won't touch That's you. Right. Maybe <laughs> Labor can apologise for it in Parliament and then continue the policy. How's that? Yeah, well, they've already yeah. said they're going to accept anyone who's currently getting it. Yeah, well, when you've got every politician in the land who's got yeah. you know investment properties, it'll yeah. probably never happen. There was a list of the members of Parliament on both sides who actually used negative gearing of quite a major list of people. Yeah, every party, in fact, yeah. even yeah. Greens. And, Do they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Depressing. So okay. we say goodbye? Yeah, Corey, say goodbye. Thank Jeff for coming in. Thank, Thank you, Emma. Jeff. She can't hear us. Then it was, we, Thank we you, lost Emma. It. Yeah. Yes. And Thank next you. week I go... Oh, next week we're discussing how you get a healthy city with Professor um, Caroline... can't think of her name. Fantastic. But anyway, we're going to do that an odd surname? Yeah, from Melbourne. Yeah, that's a, yeah, it is a strange name. <laughs> uh, All right, so you're listening to City Limits on 3CR 8.55am, maybe on 3cr.org.au. And we're going to go out with a track. This is uh, The Girl You Lost to Cocaine. Witchman, Carolyn Witchman. That's the name. I just thought of it. There we are. There we go. <laughs> Ta-da. Bye. See ya. <laughs> Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 
3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.